thank you for joining our conversation on Wow Whispering. I am your host, Diane A. Curran, and it is delightful to be with you. Wow is spontaneous, open, expressive. Whispering is intimate, still, receptive. In our modern age, moments rush in or away like quicksilver. Do we even make the time to savor a wow or reflect on a whisper, to notice and value such gifts? We're ready to do just that with you right now. Well, what an exciting day this is in the skies above. It is so lovely to have you with us today as we celebrate something brand new. And that something brand new is an image that is wending its way across the interwebs. And this is all courtesy of a group of people, we'll say 200 or so researchers, who spent more than 10 years using eight radio telescopes and some super precise atomic clocks, all to put together the first ever image of a massive black hole. And it's got the poetic name of M87. How very scientific sounding, how very left brain sounding. Well, I thought it would be appropriate for us to celebrate this a little bit and consider the meanings, the context, the scale, the inconceivable size of this accomplishment for us little old human beings here on Earth. And I thought I would start out with giving you a sense of the size of this thing. This black hole, M87, is considered to be three million times the size of Earth. That's huge by anyone's standards. It is also interesting to consider that we can't see it here from Earth. Big as it is, we have had to use our extraordinary, rapidly expanding modern technology to get to see and photograph this extraordinary reality. And I mention that because here in the skies above, we consider everything from mythology to modernity, from astronomy to astrology, from science to symbol. And this seems like the perfect confluence of both in many ways. While I'm gonna give you some statistics that are sure to get your attention and kind of amaze you, I also thought it'd be great to consider this ongoing fascination with the unknown that human beings have. It's what I think distinguishes us in a way that is inspiring and produces a kind of a sense of wonderment about the world, at the same time giving us lots of information to chew on. So in the world of science, let's, let's get really simple about this. We human beings have the capacity to walk from here to there, point A to point B. Well, how fast do human beings walk? If we could walk from point A to point B, what amount of time does that take? Well, it varies based on whether we're in a hurry to get somewhere, whether we're just enjoying a leisurely stroll, if we're in the mountains and we're struggling with up and down terrain, or if we're walking across the city. And let's think about the city streets. These days, it's a really good idea to walk across city streets at a crosswalk because we've got so many cars zooming along, they're not really necessarily looking to see you unless you happen to be in a rural location where there's one vehicle on the road approaching, there's you walking across 
the roadway or the open space. And you can see each other soon enough to acknowledging, noticing each other one-to-one. -one. Well, in the world of the city, that doesn't happen, especially if you're on a New York City street. You've got tons of cars that are racing to get to where they're going as fast as they can. You've got lots of people doing exactly the same thing, but they're doing it with their little feet, one by one by one. So what's the average speed? Well, I came across a statistic that really I find fascinating, which is what is the average pace of walking across a crosswalk? When you do, you pretty much want to get to the other side before the light turns and oops, you're potentially in danger. So walking across a crosswalk is about 3.1 miles per hour or about five kilometers per hour. Well, that's a pretty decent pace. It's not the fastest way it could walk. It's not speed walking, but you could cover some fair amount of territory in that amount of time. And you'd be doing it with a certain focus and a certain momentum. Well, let's say, for example, since I live in the US, what would it take to walk across the United States of America? Well, east to west, we've got about 2,892 miles to traverse. In kilometer land, that's 4,654 of them. So if you went from California to Maine, you don't want to walk 24 hours a day because you'd pretty soon be landing yourself in the hospital. And you want to walk at a decent pace, but you want to give your self a chance to sleep. So let's be sensible about this. Let's say you're going to walk eight hours a day. How many days would it take you to walk across the United States? About 120 days. That's a bit of a project, yes? So let's put this idea of walking across the United States in context. The, the moon, the moon is what we can see that's closest to us, that's not on Earth, and we can look at it pretty much any time it's visible in the night sky. And we can see that based on its rotation around us, we see either the entire moon and sometimes we see little slivers of it depending on what phase it's in. So if we were to walk across the United States, it would be pretty much the same thing as walking across the diameter of the moon. And the diameter of the moon is literally looked at it from east to west. From this point of view, it looks like a big flat circle in the sky. Of course it's not. It's got a circumference. It's got mass. It's got shape. But just looking at it from Earth's point of view, it would be about the same thing conceptually as walking across the United States. And by the way, speaking of today and iconic photographs, there is a very iconic photograph. Well, there's three that I'm going to think about right now, which is the one of uh, the first astronauts landing on the moon and taking a picture and sending it back to Earth the first selfie, if you will, of somebody standing on the moon. So standing on the moon was quite an accomplishment because the gravity is so much less that you pretty much float from spot to spot. It's not like just walking across a crosswalk. But there's also another couple of iconic photographs, speaking of a day for that. Uh, one is called the Blue Marble, which is a picture of the entire Earth from space where we see it in all its beautiful circular glory. It looks pretty much like a flat circle to us. And then there's another one called Earthrise that reminds us that from other celestial bodies, 
the earth also has its various phases, just like to us, the moon has phases where we see its entire circular shape or we do not based on uh, the position of the earth, the sun, and the moon relative to each other in light. And same thing with earth. So earth rise, the blue marble, and that wonderfully iconic photograph of a person standing on the moon. Now, it's probably not gonna be real soon that somebody stands in the middle of a black hole for obvious reasons. Black holes, famous for having some properties, one of which is, well, it used to be said the following way, nothing can escape a black hole. Well, that's not technically true, as it turns out. And I, like many human beings, have a pretty healthy dose of what I'll call the skeptical mind. And I remember when I first heard the phrase, nothing can escape a black hole, I thought, that can't be true. It just seems so limiting in its point of view. Well, what it was really attempting to reference is that things like light don't travel fast enough to escape the energy of a black hole. And if light can't travel fast enough, you know a human being can't travel fast enough. So everything gets sucked into the energy of the black hole, where it goes, how it morphs. We don't yet really know the answer to that. But it's a bit of a shocking image to think nothing can escape a black hole. But turns out something can escape a black hole. Science has a fascination for me for many reasons, one of which is that it always gives us new ways to understand things, new ways to consider the mysteries of life, and new ways to consider the possibilities of life. So science is always doing experiments, drawing new equations, using mathematical symbols to try to identify and conceptualize new ways of thinking that give us a bigger perspective on the expanse of the universe. So in terms of physics, what has been discovered is that there are certain subatomic particles that may indeed be able to escape a black hole, but we can't see them. We can't hold them in our little hands. They may actually be small enough to be within our hands, but this idea of escaping a black hole still conceptually tends to present itself as, since light can't escape it, neither can we, and therefore nothing else of importance can. So I, I love adding that little, we'll call it asterisk or footnote, to the statement, nothing can escape a black hole, because who knows what we'll discover next. Always something great. So let's get back to scale here. So here we have this diameter of the moon at about 2,158 miles, and the Earth itself has a diameter of about 7,917 miles. So if we were to stand, say, on another planet somewhere, or even on the moon, and look at the diameter of Earth, we could fit about four moons across the Earth. And that gives us an idea of something that's pretty darn big. The Earth is no slouch in terms of human scale. It's a pretty good size. And yet, well, let's try to compare it to the sun. Oh my gosh, even bigger. So let's think about how big is the sun? Well, the sun has a diameter about 109 times the size of Earth. That's pretty darn big. It weighs, by the way, about 333,000 times as much as Earth. And it could fit about a million three hundred Earths inside it. 
So Earth is the size of what's considered an average sunspot, a little eruption of energy on the surface of the sun. So Earth is pretty tiny. We're the third planet in our solar system next to the sun. So not too far away, not too close. So we get to sustain life, human life, yay. It gives us an idea of how giant the sun is. Also, the fact that it is a star filled with energy that is moving and dynamic that we, in the noonday sun, we cannot look straight at the sun. Yes, we wear sunglasses, so we're able to get out there in the bright sun and keep track of what's going on without being blinded. But for example, when we have a, a, a solar eclipse, we cannot look directly at a solar eclipse or we will damage our eyes. So we don't look directly at the sun, we can look directly at the moon because the moon is not a star. And if we were on another planet, we could look directly at Earth, but not the sun. So while the sun is far from having the qualities and scale of a black hole, it has some extraordinary energetic qualities that mean that we as human beings have to be very careful with how we cast our gaze in that direction. So let's keep going. Let's consider, again, the size of this black hole. It's one that was chosen because it's really huge, big enough and heavy enough to configure the photographing process to go across the scope, if you will, of this black hole and capture segments of it and put them together in an array that took about two years to process the data from, configure it, study it, report on it in such a way that just today is being published publicly for the first time. So April 10th, 2019, an important date in history regarding astronomy and putting that information out there. Very exciting. So I mentioned the speed of light before, saying it's pretty darn fast. So you think, well, gosh, wouldn't light be fast enough to travel across a black hole? Well, it's pretty darn fast. It's 186,000 miles a second or over 299 kilometers per second. That's going pretty darn fast. Faster than we human beings can ever see. We don't see light travel except when we see the reflections of light and we see the reflections, say, of a comet speeding through the atmosphere and we're seeing the reflection of the sun off the comet. And that looks pretty fantastic. We see stars doing what we call twinkling in the sky. So we're seeing reflections of light at a distance and oftentimes considering the nature of our solar system, our galaxy, our universe, and the cosmos, we're seeing reflections of things that have already occurred in the past. So for example, we were recently fascinated with the images coming from Mars of what was happening on Mars as a new, uh, as a new object uh, put into space by the United States landed. And we got to see images of that landing on Mars. We were seeing it not in real time. We're seeing it after they were transmitted back to Earth, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, I think it took about 30 minutes for those images to get back to Earth so they could then be transmitted from JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory here in uh, the Pasadena area. So we don't see light traveling at the time that it travels. We'd see it after the fact. And we see light as if it's all present all the time because it's moving so quickly that we see it as a big, wonderful, stable blur. Isn't it wonderful? 
what we human beings can do with our, I'm going to say, primitive technology of the eyeball and the brain. And oh, by the way, let me veer off into neuroscience for a second, if I may. This is a tangent. I always love going on and sharing with people. So what neuroscience has taught us in the modern era is that the brain does most of the heavy lifting of seeing. What happens is the eye sees what's out there and then it sends a message to the brain and the brain only pays attention to about 20% of what it has to process. Why? Because it's got stored in its neural pathways all this data and it uses it to create shortcuts so that we can see things faster than it would take if the brain had to go through all of its neural pathways. It would take forever for us to register what it was they were seeing. We human beings have not got that kind of patience. <laughs> we know this just because of the way we are. Nowadays, we've been trained by computers to see things in fractions of seconds. And when something takes, oh my gosh, one second, or two seconds or 10 seconds, it seems like it's taking forever for that to happen on the screen on computers. So we are very impatient by nature and we have constructed our computer capacity such that it, <laughs> if anything, makes us feel more impatient than we even used to be in the olden pre-computer days. And so what happens is the brain is a willing co-conspirator here. And what it does is it says, don't worry, I'll just take a little bit of data and I'll construct an image and I'll tell you what it means too. So for example, if, we, if we're in a crowded, uh, we'll say shopping mall or uh, we're in an arena where we're meeting up with friends for a concert and we see them across the way, that image comes from our eyeballs, goes into our eyes, but before we can even process all the people and all the faces that we're seeing, the brain says, oh, by the way, in this giant crowd of a few hundred or a few thousand people, I see something I recognize. I've seen this before. Lo and behold, that's your friend or that's your husband or that's your kid. And I'm going to tell you that message so you can sort of cut out all these other extraneous images and you don't have to process all this information from other faces. And you can go and head toward that person or wave at them and say, hey, I'm over here. And you can connect with each other a lot faster and satisfy the human impatience to have things we want to have happen now, or as close to now as possible. So I mention that because when we're seeing things, even with the aid of speed of light, light, we are getting an able assist from the neuropathways in our brain that say, let me save you some time. I can give you what you need to know fast. Here's the danger. The danger of that is that we miss stuff we haven't seen before because we're not looking for it and we don't have enough instances in our brain to be able to say, I know what this is because I've seen it before and now I'll just go to that little array of neural convergences and I'll recognize it, I'll label it, I'll give it a name and now I'll know what I'm seeing. So why I'm so celebrating this first ever picture of a black hole is we've never seen that before. It's brand new to us. We don't know if it's beautiful. We don't know if it's ugly. We don't know what it is. We know it's brand new. Now we've seen pictures of Earth, so when we see a new picture of Earth, we say, oh, I like that picture better than the first one, or eh, that isn't as clear, it's a little fuzzy. I don't like the light that was taken in. It doesn't look as pretty. So what happens is we like to form judgments. We like to form opinions about whether something's beautiful or ugly, 
useful or extraneous, interesting or dull, and we do it all the time, all the time. We're into that. So here we've got something brand new, and we don't know whether we think it's beautiful or ugly or neutral or boring. And why I mention that is because if you look at this image, it's really very simplistic. There is a little black round area in the middle, and then it's surrounded by some sort of yellowish orange and orange color that's fuzzier, fuzzy edge, not precise edge, and then surrounding that is more black because the array of telescopes was configured to capture the black hole energy, not what was surrounding it that's either much further away or much closer or somewhere in between. It was configured to capture that array of, if you will, energy. I'm not even going to say light because I don't know that it's light. Whatever it is, because remember, light can't escape a black hole. So whatever it is that we're seeing is either reflecting the energy of the universe off the black hole. We need, still need to figure out what this thing is that we're looking at. How great to have something new to look at, yes? I find the unknown to be an extraordinary source of power, discovery, interest, opportunity, creative stimulation. You never know what you're going to think about something you're seeing for the first time. So here we've got our chance today. And then tomorrow, we'll have seen it already. I, I, as soon as I got up, about 20 minutes earlier is when it had been posted to the internet. So of course, I went and just stuck it right on Facebook with a couple of statistics to hold us over <laughs> until the next information would be something I could read or something new would be published about it or a special report would be published about this whole project. I'm also very proud of the fact that of the eight fancy telescopes that were used in this array to get this picture. One of them was in Boston, where I was born, and one of them is in this part of California, Northridge, I believe it is, or at least very close to me here in the San Fernando Valley. So I feel like my original home and my adopted home have been a part of this whole process in a very personal way. And so I offer these statistics to give you a context for how rare and unusual this is, because when we get things like that, we get an opportunity to upend our view of our planet, our solar system, our galaxy, our universe, and the cosmos in general. And that, I think, for human beings, upending our opinion and our already this is what we know set of facts to add more information and add new potential facts, I see that as a useful thing. I see that as an appealing thing. I see that as, if you will, a confirmation of the creativity of the universe. It's always becoming. And we, as human beings, occasionally we're given a new peek into something we haven't seen before, we haven't thought about before, we haven't had a chance to explore before. How exciting is this? So I invite you to consider, take a look at this photograph, Notice what you notice about it. And if you can, give yourself some room in that wonderfully busy brain of yours to just hold it, suspend it in your opinions, and just let it be there for a bit. Just let it hang out with you for a while until some new information comes along. And then we'll see where that takes us because it always takes us somewhere interesting. You know, we started out life, us human beings, we didn't have telescopes. We didn't have anything but the human eye. And even with the human eye, 
which is why I'm still fascinated with things like ancient metaphysical systems of knowledge, is that those systems of knowledge gave us an opportunity to do something that has turned out to be continually useful for human beings, which is we make observations, we have little anecdotal experiences, and then we have enough of those, we collect them, we say, hmm, when this pattern shows up, these certain things tend to happen. Or when this other pattern occurs, human beings tend to behave this way. It's very known that when the moon is at its full phase or its new moon phase, human beings behave a little bit differently. Just go ask any police station when they get their, most of their calls. Just ask any hospital emergency room, when do they find more people coming? It tends to be correlated to moon's phases. So we also notice that in the world of the ancient systems of knowledge, and there are systems of astrology, which originally astrology and astronomy were one. Why were they one? Because they were all about cataloging experiences, cataloging observations to attempt to understand the patterns of life on this planet and life for human beings. And then eventually they moved into two separate arenas. Astrology went the way of symbol and astronomy went the way of science as we know it today. And so therefore you have mythology and you have modernity. What you have is this interest in both, but they're somewhat separated. And of course they like to fight with each other occasionally. People like to put one down and the other up. Truth be told, we human beings are interested in both. So I like to investigate both. It gives me a bigger picture for both and it gives me a place to look at one from some other point of view and see something I might not see if I was in the middle of one and always stayed in the middle of one. It's great to have perspective. It's great to have distance from something and see it. So I invite us to take this wonderful moment in time. We have the very first ever black hole. Let's see, what did I say its name was again? That very poetic name it was given? Hmm, M87. Well, when M87 gets to be perhaps a little bit more studied now, because it can be, then we might end up with a more poetic name for it. Right now, it's got the name it's got. And of course, I'm going to do some research after I finish speaking with you and hanging out with you. I'm going to do some research into why is it called M87? I want to know. <laughs> so we might end up with a more poetic name for it, just like we have a name for the sun. Well, what is that name? It's Apollo. And Apollo in mythology was one of the few gods that the Greeks named and the Romans kept the original Greek name. They did not change it. So for example, uh, back in the day, in the world of the Greek gods, Zeus was in charge. But then when the Romans took over, they renamed Zeus Jupiter. And everybody else got a new name, except Apollo, the sun, kept the same name. So Apollo, not necessarily in charge of the gods and goddesses, not necessarily a administrative position, Apollo, like Zeus and Jupiter had, you know, being in charge of the gods and goddesses, took a lot of work on his part. He was a little bit crazy, he had, had his own things that he liked to do, but he wasn't uh, free to just hang out and do his own thing all the time. Everybody was always petitioning him for favors, human beings, gods and goddesses, etc. His kids were half human, half god and goddess, but that's a whole other story I won't go into here today. So Apollo, however, was just had the job of shining and being incredibly attractive and compelling. So the sun, yes, we call it the sun, 
but it did have a poetic name, Apollo. The earth, well, we think of the earth as a beautiful name. It's called Terra, and sometimes it's called Gaia, and it has lots of wonderful names from poetry and mythology and story and cultures of different uh, sorts that speak the name of Earth in different ways. So let's see what happens to M87. Let's see if our very first photo becomes the inspiration for some brand new adventures. I invite you to enjoy today. We will be back with you very soon here on Wow Whispering in the little episodes that we call The Skies Above. Enjoy your day, enjoy your night, enjoy your stargazing, and enjoy your black holes. Thank you for being with us on WOW Whispering. In each episode, we present a public service announcement that highlights resources committed to uplifting our quality of life. Look for the episode show notes, which have links to learn more. Today, we are pleased to feature NCGR, which is the National Council for Geocosmic Research. It is a nonprofit organization dedicated to raising the standards of astrological education and research. Along with its U.S. membership, it includes a growing number of national members and sponsors in 30-plus local chapters in 20 U.S. states and four countries. Its special interest groups foster dialogue on various astrological specialties, and its online education and educational conference bring astrologers from around the world together to grow and learn together. Their sister organization is NCGR-PAA and allows students to leverage their astrological education into professional certification. They welcome new members, and you can find out more about them at their website, which is geocosmic.org. That's G-E-O-C-O-S-M-I-C.org. Our second organization is NASA, which is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. We all know NASA as the place to be if you want to know how to get off the planet and find out extraordinary things about, well, the solar system we live in, for starters. So they're all about the future. So on their website, they ask the question, what's next for NASA? Well, their vision is that we reach for new heights and reveal the unknown for the benefit of humankind. Thousands of people have been working around the world and off of it for decades, trying to answer some really basic questions. What's out there? How do we get there? What will we find? What can we learn there? Or learn just by trying to get there. That will make life better here on Earth. So what's up immediately in the solar system beyond? Well, NASA is going to add to its existing robotic fleet at the Red Planet with the InSight Mars lander set to study the planet's interior. The Mars 2020 rover will look for signs of past microbial life, gather samples for future return to Earth, and investigate resources that could someday support astronauts right there on Mars. And they're also going to be sending humans out into the solar system, moon to Mars. The Space Launch System rocket is going to be building on the growing scientific knowledge of our solar system, NASA is developing the most advanced rocket and spacecraft to lead the next steps of human exploration farther into space than we have ever traveled before. And then there's the International Space Station. 
The International Space Station. Ooh, doesn't that sound romantic and interesting and kind of overwhelming? And definitely a wow all on its own. Humans have already been living and working off the Earth in the one-of-a-kind research laboratory in microgravity. The International Space Station serves as a blueprint for global cooperation and scientific advancement, a destination for growing a commercial marketplace in low Earth orbit, and a test bed for demonstrating new technologies. Research on the station is the springboard to NASA's next great leap in exploration, sending humans into deep space. And they've got even more missions planned about flight, space technology, and of course, Earth. So you can learn more about them at nasa.nasa.gov. So what's next is on their page called nasa.gov forward slash about forward slash what's underscore next dot html. But you can go there and find it and take a look at our show notes and you'll see more. So lots more to learn, lots more to discover. What a pleasure to be with you in the world of wow whispering. As we complete this episode, I invite you to notice the wows and whispers that enliven or challenge as they fulfill life for you in both tiny moments and transforming experiences. I wish you the very best until we meet next time.